There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, the Republican Party's last-ditch effort to overturn the presidential election for a man who was just caught on tape trying to steal it again. Uh, We'll also talk about the state of the Georgia Senate races a day before the election and what Joe Biden can do to fix the federal government's bungled vaccine rollout. Then you'll hear from former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, friend of the pod, Alyssa Mastromonaco, uh, who's going to talk all about what to expect in a presidential transition in her crooked YouTube series, Let's Break It Down. Uh, but first, but first, check out the latest episode of Gaining Ground, the New Georgia, uh, where Jewel and Rembert talk all about what to expect on Election Day, which is tomorrow. Um, go download that pod if you haven't listened over the break. It's a fantastic series about how Georgia got to this point, how it's turned blue, uh, based on what the organizers on the ground have been doing, the hard work they've been doing over the years. Fantastic uh, series. Check it out. Um, The election is tomorrow. There will also be volunteer opportunities available right up until the polls close on January 5th. So sign up for a shift today at votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia and send the link to your Georgia friends so that they have access to valuable voting information tomorrow. Super important. Can't believe we have another election already. I know. Jesus. It's too much. It's too much. All right. Let's get to the news. When we last spoke, Donald Trump had just finished losing 60 legal challenges about imaginary voter fraud and irregularities in the courts of dozens of judges that he appointed, including a unanimous rejection from the Supreme Court. He also failed to stop a single state he lost from certifying its election for Joe Biden, despite publicly bullying countless Republican election officials and state legislators. And yet... The soon-to-be ex-president is simply not tired of losing and has set himself up for one final humiliating defeat with the help of some of America's worst people. On Wednesday, January 6th, during what has always been a fairly routine counting and certification of the electoral votes in Congress, most House Republicans and at least 12 Republican senators plan to formally object to Joe Biden's win, citing more imaginary fraud and irregularities. Unfortunately for them, the only recorded instance of fraud came on Sunday, when the Washington Post released the full audio of a call where Trump told Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that he'd be criminally liable if he didn't find Trump enough votes to overturn the thrice-certified election in that state. Here is a clip. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, 
based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can, both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Love it. Um, I saw on Twitter last night that you said you listened to the full hour. I of listened the to the call. full hour. Oh, I did too. It was great. It was a, it was a, a hour well spent. Wow, guys, I'm so impressed with both of you. In the streaming <laughs> era, there's really been a blurring between the traditional half hour comedy and the hour long <laughs> drama. Um, and I think sometimes that's led to like comedies that aren't funny. But this was a drama with great great jokes in it. And well, I just so what did you learn? What did you learn from the full hour? Love it. So. <laughs> So um, I, I think like, I feel like there's a lot of people saying, oh, Trump is delusional. Trump is delusional. But if you listen to the tape, first of all, I was always I was thinking about Axelrod calling Trump a feral genius, which I think is both too kind and too unkind. He's not that feral and he's not that smart. And you listen <laughs> to this tape and what he's what he's really saying is, look, I'm giving you plenty of certified fake numbers. They have specific commas in them. They have digits. You can just take these numbers, just take them. I'm giving them to you. And it's enough to stir enough doubt to throw out the results. Why don't you understand that? I endorsed your guy. We're both Republicans. And, you know, he throws in in the call, right? Like, I got other states on the blower, too, and they're going to do the same thing. Now, that's obviously not true, but he's trying to get something going, right? He needs Georgia to help him so that some some something crazy can happen in Michigan. He needs Michigan to help him so something can happen in Georgia. And he's just spinning his wheels and spinning his wheels and spinning his wheels. And the and the, and and throughout the call, there are these uh, interjections from uh, sleazy lawyers and Mark Meadows. And, and I think the call culminates in Mark Meadows uh, basically at a moment of awkward silence saying, so I think what I'm hearing is... <laughs> I love that part too. <laughs> I think what I'm hearing I know, is good. we're all going to meet and look at some of this information and figure out if there's a way forward. Just trying to get out of this call with a do out. And the lawyer is just like, no, we're recording this. I'm not giving you anything. <laughs> what Meadows said is his... So what I think we all agreed on is you're going to give me a bunch of data that you cannot legally give me. And the lawyer right. for Raffensperger is like, no, absolutely not. I did not agree to that. It is. Yeah. Mark Meadows is not very good at shepherding along the process. That is that much is, is clear here. <laughs> I mean, here's here's one of the many thoughts I had is like, what did Trump think he was going to get from this fucking call? Like he has not had a great history with Brad Raffensperger as he's been publicly berating him. For like the last month, did he not think that Raffensperger was going to think about taping the call? Did he not think that Raffensperger was going to tell him to go fuck himself and not give him what he wanted? Like, what about his relations with Brad Raffensperger made him think this is the call that's actually going to do it? That this guy's going to say, you know what? You're right. I'm going to go fucking steal the election for you and go find the votes. Like, that's what makes me think he is pretty delusional. Uh, well, <laughs> look, this is for once this question isn't just sort of like, uh, you know, psychological in nature. It might have legal ramifications because, you know, the, the, there's a legal debate about whether this call was illegal or not. And a lot of it might boil down to sort of some sort of proof of his knowledge or intent that he would be defrauding uh, the Georgia electorate yeah. if he got Raffensperger to do this. So it is, it's very hard for me to tell 
whether he is just spouting a bunch of nonsense trying to give Raffensperger a pretext to finally overturn the election just because he's that desperate, or whether he has created this like cocoon of bullshit around himself that involves OAN and actually not even Fox News anymore, Newsmax and these increasingly insane lawyers like Lynn Wood and others who are just telling him what he wants to hear. And, you know, instead of reading the PDB, he's just getting every like Reddit conspiracy theory put on his desk and he just wants to believe them. I, I have no idea, but it you know, clearly the call is unethical. It is beyond the pale for a president to threaten. <laughs> yeah. To threaten, I would say not ethical. Yeah, yeah. Not ethical, no, definitely, definitely flagging the uh, the. It's yeah. definitely a moray violation. <laughs> Throw the flag. But <laughs> look, he, he threatens Raffensperger and his lawyer with some sort of criminal offense, TBD, and then he says, "I just want to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes." I mean, he he's threatening to punish them if they don't do his bidding. I thought it was interesting. I think Ben Collins pointed this out uh, on Twitter, who's usually on the, the QAnon crazy beat. Um, he was saying that like the, everything that Trump said in the call was just mainline straight from the Reddit threads, yep. 8chan, fucking, you know, parlor, right? Like all of the way beyond Fox News, way beyond right wing media at this point, just like all of the darkest, craziest corners of the Internet now go have a direct pipe to the president of the United States who then spouts these conspiracy theories to the secretary of state of Georgia in an effort to overturn the election, just straight up. And, and you know, it's um, first of all, to your point, right, this is someone who Trump uses hostile and this is how straightforward he's being in his demands. Imagine, right. imagine the conversations going on with people he views as more friendly to him, the Lindsey Grahams of the world. I mean, uh, I'm, I was appreciating how direct uh, these Georgia Republicans were in saying, uh, we decided to tape them because Lindsey Graham did a crime on the phone yep. and nobody yeah. believed us. Yep. And so first of all, you have to imagine what those conversations are like. What was that conversation in the Oval with those Michigan elected officials? What have these conversations that we don't know about been like. And the other piece of this is, you know, again, everything is very stupid and very important because, yes, these are ridiculous, baseless conspiracy theories, and we'll get to it. But, you know, Trump promulgates uh, these conspiracy theories. They spread on right wing media. It's a it's a it's a doom loop. They come out through Trump again. And then all of a sudden, all these Republicans say there's a lot of questions about this election. We're just following these questions. They fabricate the questions and then they use the fabricated questions as a justification for delegitimizing the election. Uh, there's so the question is, like, what should be done about this call? You know, Tommy, you noted that, you know, there's sort of a debate among legal experts and lawyers, whether it was illegal, you know, I, I think we leave it to the lawyers to sort of handle that, figure that out, right? Like, I think there was some, um, the, uh, the, a DA in Georgia said they were going to look into it, mm -hmm. investigate this, right? So that's fine. You know, there's been calls for like, he should be impeached again, um, which I'm just like, <laughs> sure. Like, should Donald Trump be impeached again? Of course he should be impeached again. He should be out of the fucking office as soon as possible. But like, what, like, Let's play this out. So the House the House gathers together today, the new House. They vote to impeach Donald Trump. Great. It passes. He's impeached again. Mitch McConnell doesn't take it up in the Senate, or he does. It immediately falls. He doesn't get convicted. Um, and so I guess we all feel pretty good that there's like uh, two impeachments on his on his track record when he leaves office, that he's got he's got two two black marks against him and we all cheer. Uh, what, what? Yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know what it does. In the short term, like hopefully the audio of this call makes it a little bit harder politically for, you know, Ted Cruz and then you know, blow dried Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley and some of these other senators and representatives to go along with this scheme because they can spin this however they want. They can pretend they're creating a commission or they're just, you know, they want people, their constituents to be heard. That is all bullshit. 
you are helping this guy try to get random state election officials to steal votes for him. That's that's the end goal. You can't pretend otherwise after hearing this. So, you know, that's the short term. Long term, there this may have violated a, a federal statute. It may have violated a Georgia statute. We don't know. It's not our job to, to really speculate. We'll see what DOJ says or Georgia prosecutors say down the road. In the near term, I mean, look, I, I think my takeaway from impeachment is that uh, there was uh, sort of a bipartisan sense that voters didn't like it very much. And I think, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic, when they were just pro- promised another uh, $2,000 check each, when the vaccine rollout is slow, when Biden's trying to get in there and like use the DPA to move things forward and, you know, enact a bunch of priorities, like another impeachment seems like a, a, something that would be wildly unpopular to me. Uh, I know there are some who who think that we sh- we need accountability and results. Just the problem is, if you impeach him, I don't believe he's going to be removed because the Republican Party is a cult and they will refuse to remove him. So we'll be in the same exact place. He won't place. be removed. We'll be in the same place. He won't be removed at all. A thousand percent. Even uh, my, my thing is, even if even if impeachment, I don't know how it pulls, maybe the second impeachment would be uh, 75-25 in favor. Maybe everyone would be for it. Tell me how it would materially change Anything about the current situation we're in, even a little bit. Only if he's removed. What effect would it have? Only if he's impeached, removed, and then he can't run for office again. But again. But right. And he will unlikely. absolutely not be removed anyway. We're, we have a bunch of Republicans in the Senate who won't certify the election results right. for Joe Biden, let alone convict the president of a crime. Right. <laughs> you fucking crazy. I, I also just think it's like, like, OK, take a step back from this one question. I think a lot of these Republicans are going along with this for completely cynical reasons, and they just think their primary voters may have a longer memory than general election voters. The next election is a lifetime away for all these people. We, you know, the odds that we're reflecting on this moment in November of 2022 seems unlikely to me. Maybe seems unlikely to me. Maybe it's part of how we tell the story of this moment. Um, That said, I think there's like two big questions for us beyond Trump. One, how do we disincentivize criminal behavior on the part of a president moving forward? And I think that means he needs to be held accountable after he leaves office. Yes. And I hope prosecutors at the state level and at the federal level look at every violation without partisanship, with no politics, because these law, this law breaking is incredibly uh, uh, dangerous. It's crim- I don't know if this call specifically is criminal, but there's so much criminal conduct right. that we've observed over the last four years that should be looked at. But, but we w- beloved, I think I think it's important to say that like that is the job to me. I don't know if you think this too. Like that is the job of the prosecutors and the people at Justice Department and stuff like that. Like it is not a job for pundits and politicians even to be talking about what should or shouldn't happen afterwards. Like he should be pr- prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law if people who are, you know, that's their job, find that he should be prosecuted. That's it. It's their judgment. One ad though, I would like to see Congress, House or the Senate or both, continue to investigate his crimes. It doesn't have to be impeachment. They should keep digging into this stuff. Sorry, I love it. Sure. No, no, sure. I, I totally agree. So so I and I think I think there was a moment where Joe Biden was, I think, hinting he's been saying the right things lately, which is it's not my job. I'm going to leave it up to career prosecutors, because I think one of the most damning things I've heard some politicians and some pundits say is we need to look forward. The only way to look forward to protect the country moving forward is to make sure there's accountability for the crimes of the past or we'll just invite more criminality in the future. And then so as part of this, you know, making sure we disincentivize criminal behavior on the part of a president, Congress needs to investigate. Congress needs to make sure they strengthen laws against self-dealing, look at restraining the pardon power, look at ways to prevent uh, corruption in all the different forms, look at uh, making into law what were norms that have been violated over the past four years. And that's 
So that's preventing criminality on the part of one person. The second part, and this is, I think, a harder part to figure out what to do, is we need to attack the incentives that lead people like Ted Cruz and, and Josh Hawley, completely cynical mercenary actors, to view uh, being uh, for Trump as more valuable than being for democracy. And, and that, to me, is, a, I think, a really hard question. And Democrats do a lot of self-flagellation, but we need to look at the media ecosystem and the ways in which this kind of behavior has been incentivized. Because p- politicians will be cynical. They will do what they view as in their best interest. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are in a competition to be the most disgusting because they think it's their path to becoming president. And yeah, my, and my beef with that, you're right. The, but that is that is such a large meta question that is so far beyond the power. You know, I've, I saw some people saying like, Joe Biden needs to drop his talk of of, of unity and bipartisanship and, and Joe Biden needs to come out and start screaming about this. Number one, Joe Biden gave a pretty forceful speech um, on the day that all the votes were certified where he called this an attack on the on, on the democracy and, and, and said everything he should say. Um, Joe Biden can come out today and scream about sedition into a microphone and I'd cheer it. I'd fucking RT all those quotes in a with second. Your good, right? With that your would good, be good arm. <laughs> with my good arm. Yeah, I'd be RT and everything. Um, but like, do we think so? Again, I go back to the question about impeachment. What is the effect on the situation? What does that materially change? Does that convince uh, does that change the incentives for for Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley? Does no. that change them? Right. Does that convince a single Republican? Mitch McConnell could not convince Mitch McConnell got on the phone with all of the Republican senators and said, please do not object to these results. This is going to be bad for us. Do not do this. And 12 senators said, fuck you, Mitch McConnell. Are those senators going to listen to Joe Biden go out there and start screaming about this? No, no, no. Of course they're not. The majority of the American people don't want this to happen. They voted for Joe Biden. Of course they don't want this to happen. So we've got the majority of the American people on our side. Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney are on our side. Like, what what else are Democrats yelling about this going to do? No, it's just the, the look, this silly conversation is pretending it's impeachment or nothing. There's lots in between, right? Impeachment seems like a right. bad idea. There's not time. Joe Biden won the election. There's a critical, there's a pandemic raging. Let's focus on those things. I think we need to let Joe Biden and other smart politicians like have a public message that is focused on big issues that people care about. And then when Joe Biden takes over, the wheels of government will turn. DOJ will do its thing based on whatever technocrats decide. Prosecutors in states will do their things. Committees should investigate. But like screaming for impeachment right now seems like not the best use of time to me. The literally the most important thing that we could possibly do right now is to amass more power, to do all the things that Lovett said, to turn norms into laws, to, uh, you know, pass laws about corruption, all this kind of stuff. It requires power, it requires us to be in power. And that requires us to uh, win these two races tomorrow in Georgia and maintain the House in 2022. Why did we lose a lot of Democratic House members in 2020? It's because there was a bunch of people who voted for Democratic House members in 2018 who either didn't come out or, or voted for Republicans in, in 2020 in the House. We need to get those voters back. That, that, that's the only path to power in 2022 and beyond and to make sure that we save democracy by passing a bunch of laws that aren't just norms to stop all this bullshit from happening again. We need power, you know, and like that's that's what we should be focused on. How do we get those people to vote for us? I also would say, too, like it, it, this isn't just a Republican Democratic divide. The, there is an intra Republican fight unfolding like Pat Toomey and, and Mitt Romney, like Susan Collins, they, they there is a fight going on inside of Republican politics around democracy and integrity and about whether there is <laughs> such a thing as truth anymore. And uh, I'm not saying, you know, that makes Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and Pat Toomey heroes, but it does mean that when Republicans are fighting amongst themselves, our job is not to give them a unified thing they can can yeah. argue against, right? Let them right. fight. Let as As, you know, as they, Godzilla and Mothra, let them fight. I do want to know, like, back to the beginning of the conversation, there's no way this is the only call of this nature that he's made. How do we investigate that? 
and figure out what he said to PA state officials, Michigan officials, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, uh, in, in terms of McConnell, like Ted Cruz and blow dried Ted Cruz are the most annoying because they're smart enough to know better and they're smart enough to know how cynical what they're doing is. But uh, like, I would like every Capitol Hill reporter who has lavished praise on Mitch McConnell for years and, and talked about his iron grip on the Republican caucus to just eat a little shit in this moment, right? Like a dozen Republican senators are giving McConnell the finger and he kind of deserves it, right? Like he tried to play footsie with Trump in these conspiracy theories. Not one of these guys in Washington has stood up to Trump and shown strength in the way Brad Raffensperger has. Instead, they all made a cynical calculation about how to help turn out in Georgia in these runoffs and, you know, how to like mollify Trump for a few weeks or months. And, you know, now they're now they're living with the consequences, right? So like we're we're all disappointed, but no one should be surprised. This is what happens every time Trump does something crazy, and slowly the majority of the Republican Party warms to it, and it becomes their position. It's just how it works. Let, because this is way more fun than talking about what Democrats should do. Let's talk about the inter-Republican <laughs> fight here. Um, because so so you know Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, this is going to fail on Wednesday. We should we should have said that from the outset, right? Why is it going to fail on Wednesday? Because uh, if a senator and a House member, and now there's multiple senators and multiple House members, object to a certain state's um, electoral college certification, then they both go back to their chambers, both the House and the Senate. They debate it for two hours, and then they all have to vote. Uh, Democrats control the majority in the House, so Democrats will vote every single objection down. And now we have a pro-democracy majority in the Senate, meaning all the Democratic votes plus Romney, Collins, and all the other Republicans now 15, I think, who've said that they will not object to the certification is a healthy majority in the Senate to vote all the objections, In down. including so like raging right wingers like Tom Cotton, by the way. Right. Like this is a broad majority Tom of Cotton. the party. Mike Lee, Ted Cruz's buddy, yeah. Mike Lee just came out right before the pod and said he's not going to object either. So we have a so they're going to be all shot down. So now the question is, why do you guys think that Holly Cruz uh, and that crew has decided to object and do this? And why do you think not just people you'd expect like Mitt Romney, but Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, Mike Lee have decided not to object. What do you think the various calculations are on both sides of this fight? I mean, I think Ted Cruz and, and blow-dried Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, are <laughs> cynical pieces of shit and they want to run for president again. And they think that this is how you will get to the Trump base when push comes to shove in the next primary. This is what happens every time a, a, a rabid right winger loses a presidential election, whether it, it's Nixon or Goldwater or others, like the, the politicians who cling to them until the bitter end usually get some benefit from it in the next primary. I, I think that's the calculation here. Yeah, it was funny. It was funny when uh, so so Josh Hawley did his press release um, kind of solo and then Ted Cruz came out with his uh, Dirty Dozen and Josh Hawley was like, welcome to my plan. Yeah, Ted Cruz yeah. is like, no, no, this is my plan. I'm you're on my I'm your part of my separate bigger plan. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think they're seeing where the Trump base is going so that they might lead them. I also think they want to continue to so doubt about election integrity so they can pursue uh, voter suppression over the next two to four years. Definitely. Uh, I think some of some of these House members genuinely believe this shit. Uh, there are a lot of low information voters in the House. Um, it is, I think, also <laughs> there's one is, in the White House. Yeah, one in the White House. I also think it's um, pretty chilling how many Republican senators elect are part of this 12. Right. Tells you something. Almost about all the, of them. Tells you something about the future of the Republican Party. 
uh, because it's, you know, it's people like Toomey who have said they're retiring. It's people like Mitt Romney who have embraced this sort of uh, uh, old sage persona, it, you know, finally discovers how to be a person after giving up running for president. Uh, so uh, I found that pretty, pretty sad. And I think some of them are, again, it's what I said at the top. They think that their base voters and the people they raise money from have a longer memory than general election voters. And they're counting on uh, avoiding a fight with Trump and the base now and not paying a price for it in two years. I, I do think that, you know, Tommy, you're right that they are trying to figure out where the base is because they want to run for president in 2024. I think it's also true that where the base is, at least where the right wing media ecosystem has led them, is um, not being for democracy. Right. Like, I think these I think some of these Republicans literally don't care about sacrificing democracy anymore. I think that they have they are sliding very fast if they have not already gotten there towards autocracy. I am very concerned that if 2024 rolls around and the Republicans are in control of the House and they're in control of the Senate, especially with some of these more radical members in the Senate now, and we have an election, whether it's Joe Biden running, whether it's another Democrat running and the Democrat wins the election, that next time we come to a certification in the in the Congress and the House, that there'll be enough objections to overturn an election. I'm genuinely worried. You should be. And I think that a lot of these Republicans just think like we believe in our bullshit so much. We believe that we should be in power so much that democracy really doesn't matter. It's actually a nuisance. And that's happened in other countries throughout history. Like, I'm very scared of that. Most dictators, most autocrats, tyrants don't start that way. They start as freedom fighters or elected officials and they cling to power over time. And, and, you know, uh, they do increasingly frightening authoritarian things. The the one like, I don't know, maybe this is a silver lining. I was trying to think of any silver lining. This is clarifying for Joe Biden, right? Like it was smart of Joe Biden and it was right of him to run on unity and to run on working together, to run on bipartisanship. That's what voters want to hear. Clearly it worked. He won the election, but none of us had any faith that Mitch McConnell or anyone else in the Republican party would actually be constructive once he got into office, especially if Trump is still pulling the strings with these idiots via Twitter, which is clearly what's going to happen. So at least now, like he can point to this as an inciting incident and say, this is the break with the GOP. I tried. They wouldn't even let me take office before, you know, mainlining these conspiracy theories. Like, I, I look, it's it's not a great silver lining. If we win Georgia, it changes everything. But I think one of the reasons it does change everything is the reason I think McConnell looks so so weak in this moment is McConnell's power as majority leader is not preventing his members from voting the way they want to vote. It's preventing votes from happening at all. McConnell can't prevent this vote. And so they're going to vote the way they want. The control over the floor, the preventing of the voting on two thousand dollar checks or what have you, over the la- or and anything over the over the Obama administration, that's his power. And so you know, right now we can draw comfort in intra Republican divides. But if a majority of Republicans do not want to pass anything while Joe Biden is president, it doesn't matter as much in the Senate after these votes what Mitt Romney or Susan Collins ultimately want to do if McConnell uh, uh, won't go along with things. I think Joe Biden's demeanor and how he works with Republicans, it, it, like Georgia matters more than what Joe Biden decides, right? Like if we lose Georgia, then even though Republicans are maniacs who tried to overturn an election, Joe Biden's only path is to still try to work with them on legislate, legislation and, 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 and forge bipartisan compromises because he doesn't have the power to pass things himself outside executive authority, which he should try to do and then see what gets struck down by the courts. We've already talked about this. But if we win Georgia tomorrow and now he's got a Democratic majority, then I think there 
there should be pressure applied on Joe Biden because now he has a Senate majority and not just Joe Biden, but the Joe Manchins of the world, the Kirsten Cinemas, the Mark Kellys, like some of the more conservative Democrats that are in the Senate. Because if Joe Biden doesn't pass H.R. 1, the democracy reforms, make D.C. a state, Puerto Rican statehood, you know, gerrymandering, like all the other good stuff and democracy reforms. If he doesn't get that done fast, then we are at real risk of this, of them Republicans succeeding in overturning a future election. They still may, but at least passing a lot of these democratic reforms will reduce the chances. And he has to get that done if we win Georgia. He has to get a whole bunch of stuff done if we win Georgia. And also if we win Georgia, by the way, every one of these objections that have been raised to any of these nominees, near as mean tweets or someone being upset said about this like I, I would just tell them to fuck off <laughs> like they don't need them you can object all you want we're gonna just ram every single nominee through the senate and you're gonna like it and we're gonna fill a bunch of judicial nominations too and he's he actually has to exercise that power if we win georgia because then all the criticisms of him and the bipartisanship and all that stuff will be completely valid it's just amazing to be on like year five of a failure of any republican to take collective action and stand up to donald trump right like they have they watch themselves get steamrolled in the primary because none of them would push back on this guy. And they like Ted Cruz specifically sucked up to him until the very last moment, thinking he could then make it a one on one race and, and pull it out. And he got his ass kicked and, and he got humiliated. And now he's right back where he started, just kissing Trump's ass. Ted Cruz had one moment of conscience four years ago at the convention. It lasted about 12 and a half hours and it has not been seen since. Nope. So. One of McConnell's various henchmen that just sort of populate the dark corners of the internet and just tweet shit from their K Street offices, um, he said, uh, you know, Holly and Cruz will live to regret this. And his Josh Holmes did that. Got it. I, I knew them. There are, there are so many of them. I read the tweet. Holly and, Holly and, Cruz, <laughs> Holly and Cruz will live to regret this. Um, and, and all the other Republicans who did this will live to regret it. Do you think he's right that they'll live to regret it? Because I look, I would love for him to be right on this. I would uh, in this fight as a as a citizen of this democracy, I am on the side of the Mitch McConnell's, Lindsey Graham's, Tom Cotton's about this. Right. <laughs> but I don't know if um, if Holly and Cruz will live to regret this. I think this could be politically for them beneficial. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the other side of it. I mean, we're, we're sort of in predicting. So, I, I yeah, I obviously don't know either. I, I think it's going to take some work. To get to that, like, I'd like to be at that place. I'd like to have Trump viewed as Nixon, right? A disgraced loser. Uh, but it's going to it's going to require these Republicans standing up to him forcefully now and not letting him pull the strings or 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 tweet the agenda for another two, three, four years. You know, look, Trump emerged from decades of rot in Republican politics hard pressed to point to any facet of that problem that got better over the last four years. If you think we're going to get to a place where someone like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley pay a price for what they just did, you have to show me where uh, there's going to be some positive change in this media ecosystem, in the you know spreading filth on Facebook via Newsmax and OAN. You have to show me some place where you see a sign that things in the Republican side inside of that debate is getting better. I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere. In fact, they, they abandoned Fox News worse. for be- and gerrymandering. They just abandoned Fox News because it wasn't telling him what they want to hear. Yes, we have a supply problem in terms of what these uh, media uh, uh, companies and, and billionaire-backed institutions are pumping out. But there's also a demand problem. People are going to where they find the news that tells them exactly what to hear before they get in their car and drive to Ralph's to do YMCA without a mask. I think yeah. I think the one place that may hurt Holly and Cruz personally and their personal ambitions, and this is what I don't I don't quite know what the calculation is on this. 
Donald Trump could run again in 2024. That's, he may run again in 2024. Right. So if you if you if your story is Donald Trump had this election stolen from him, but otherwise he's the rightful winner, then why are you running against him in 2024? Why if why should voters choose you, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz? When you just told us that Donald Trump was the rightful winner of the last election, well, something something's not going, something's not right there. This is what I tried to understand <laughs> all along. It's it's almost like they didn't believe that he was going to run in twenty twenty four. But you need to be able to call him a loser and say it's time for someone else. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. All right, let's talk Georgia. The Senate special election is tomorrow. After months of campaigning and hundreds of millions of dollars spent in advertising, the races between Senator Kelly Leffler and Reverend Raphael Warnock and Senator David Perdue and John Ossoff are still neck and neck, with the polls moving ever so slightly towards the Democrats in the final days. Far more important than the polls are the actual votes. Over 3 million Georgians, nearly 39% of all eligible voters have already cast ballots, which is already the highest turnout in a Georgia special election ever. If there were no more votes cast... It would be the highest turnout in a special election. So just like in the general election uh, that we just went through in November, it's hard to predict what the early vote means for who will win on election day because we don't know exactly who will turn out on election day. There is a denominator we're missing. But what can the numbers in Georgia tell us about who's voting and who each side needs to turn out on Tuesday? Tommy. Uh, So like you said, this is closer to a 2020 general election turnout right now than it is a runoff, which hopefully is good for us. Um, It seems to be favoring Democrats. There's higher black turnout by, I think, three to four percentage points. And then turnout in white rural areas is down so far, especially in northern Georgia, which is where Trump is going today. Right. Uh, And but uh, so that's why they're sending him there tonight. But who knows if his message is going to be uh, go out and vote, or if it's going to be uh, the state Republican Party in Georgia is stealing your votes, why even bother? So w- we know in November, more Georgians voted early in person than by mail. That trend seems to be continuing. The question is always whether there's a huge Republican turnout uh, on election day. So look, I, I don't know. It, it, I, as always, it's good to know that you've banked a lot of votes, but it's hard to predict things based on this data, especially you know, a runoff election after a what's now described as a disputed election uh, in a pandemic. It's just who knows. Yeah, like, you know, so all the number crunchers have been looking at this and and Nate Cohn did a couple interesting threads on this. I think what we can say is um, for Republicans to win these runoffs, they will need to um, improve their turnout on Election Day by even more than they improved their turnout between early vote, absentee voting, and election day during the general. Right. So they have to do even better on election day than they did uh, in, in November. And that's it's not impossible. People just change, could change the way they vote. But it's a tall order, and it is, I think, better than a lot of people expected. Look, Republicans had an advantage in this race in that um, in the general election, uh, David Perdue did win more votes than John Ossoff, about 88,000 more votes. Um, when you tallied all the votes on the in the jungle primary, uh, Democrats did slightly worse than Republicans in the special election. Now that's between Leffler and Warnock. So and in special elections, turnout for 
often goes down. So that is sort of the hill that Democrats had to climb. And now it's look, looking like they are climbing that hill. So it could be very close. But love it. You were saying we, we were talking we've talked about this for a long time now that Georgia, the, the, the dynamics of this Georgia race. And you were saying that a lot of voters are um, cynical and not stupid and that they might come out every, anyway, even though you know, Donald Trump and everyone else has been sending messages, Lynn Wood and all the other crazies have been sending messages that the election is rigged. But it does look like turnout is lagging in some of these areas so far. Maybe they'll make up for it on Election Day. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we don't know. And I think, look, this it, it, we're recording this Monday afternoon. Uh, I don't know. You know, we I think it's all going to come down to turnout. And, uh, you know, we'll <laughs> see. We'll, we will we will see tomorrow. I think there are some heartening numbers. But uh, and also one thing we've kind of started to consider is that maybe our thought, our kind of gut instinct on ter- higher turnout is better for Democrats, maybe changing as the electorate shifts. We just don't know. Um, that said, I, you know, it's a it's a completely unknown. We're running a two Senate runoffs for control of the Senate after the biggest turnout election uh, in a presidential contest. As the president says that elections are illegitimate, they're running incredibly vicious uh, right wing hits on these two Democrats to try to stir up their base to get people out. That cattle prod has worked for them in the past. Maybe it's going to work, right? Like, oh, they need a bigger turnout than ever on Tuesday. Well, we could wake up on Wednesday and they got it. We just really have no idea. And as to whether or not what Trump is doing is going to kind of depress turnout, maybe. I just don't know. I just, um, I never wanted us to count on it. And I still don't think we should. One thing, last I looked, almost 80,000 votes have been cast already who didn't vote in the November election. And that like and that is disproportionately who is that guy? It's more that is get me uh, get me a profile on those <laughs> well, people. It is, what, what were you doing so a month ago? Some <laughs> of it is some of it is young people who weren't of age yet. Uh. And then it is if you look at the racial breakdown of that cohort, it is um there are more black voters than there are in the larger cohort of voters. Uh so that's Good news for Democrats, both those things. And I just like what, you know, some of those could, of course, be Republicans who are turning out for the first time, too. I'm sure a bunch of them are. But that is a testament, by the way, to a lot of these organizers on the ground. Stacey Abrams crew, Fair Fight Action, all of the other Georgia organizers and activists that have been doing this work for a year. Latasha Brown that have been doing this work for years to get that many people registered and out to vote between the general and now is astonishing. There was a great piece in, in The New York Times magazine about Latasha Brown and, and Fair Fight and the efforts to change Georgia. Yep. And it's uh, really worth reading. Yeah, that was in the Daily this morning, too. But like, you know, if you're Purdue or Loeffler, like you can't be happy that Trump is dominating the news cycle as a general matter and, no! and questioning the value of voting itself as a closing <laughs> argument. On top of that, clearly the coronavirus is a key issue for everybody just because it is. And Trump really did help clarify that Republican control of the Senate was preventing additional stimulus and direct payments to people as part of that stimulus. So I, like, again, I don't want to predict, but this is not how I'd want to close. Now, what's clear is that they, Leffler and Purdue, are going like hardcore racist base only messaging. Like they're not looking for a lot of swing voters when they're running a Reverend Wright ad uh, about Warnock, right? Like it's a gross, gross campaign. The Republican strategy from the beginning has been to uh, it was their strategy in 2020, and they think that it at least worked on a congressional level. Uh, Democrats are radical socialists, yeah. right? We all saw the the debate, and Kelly Leffler repeated Raphael Warnock, radical socialist, a million times, right? Like, that's been their strategy. They have driven that strategy with their own message. They have driven it in paid media the whole time, right? 
The Democrats' message from Ossoff and Warnock has been these two are basically corrupt senators who've profited off the pandemic at a time when they're blocking relief for you. And here's what we're for. They have a very positive message, jobs, justice, health care, right? They've been repeating it over and over again. Then that, that's their message. So whatever happens on Election Day, I think if you look at who has had more luck driving their message, not just through their own paid media, but through the media through the shape who has had a better who has, who has been better at shaping the media narrative in these final weeks. And I think like I think uh, Warnock and Ossoff have by a mile, partly helped by Trump and Mitch McConnell in this whole fucking stimulus debacle. Like when when Donald Trump came out for the two thousand dollar checks, I was worried because I thought what was going to happen is Mitch McConnell was going to put it up for a vote, knowing that it wouldn't pass the Senate. A bunch of Republicans would vote against it. Leffler and Purdue would vote for the $2,000 checks, and then they could go back and say, look, we voted for this, blah, blah, blah. And instead, McConnell blocks the vote. They sort of mealy mouth come out for it. Trump starts screaming about how Mitch McConnell blocked the relief. And now Ossoff and Warnock can campaign last last week by saying, we're for $2,000. These guys couldn't get it done in the Senate. This is the kind of Senate you're going to get if you send them back. You're going to get a Senate that doesn't help working people. I- like, I don't know. You can't ask for much better than that. Well, I mean, look, it's a it's a, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a intellectually honest and sincere, positive message. While I'd say like uh, Purdue is awful <laughs> on the stump. Leffler, man, just this complete just like you see Purdue and Leffler and you they like, why do you even want this job? You don't seem it. It's just right. complete, like you're you're up there. You, you like this is left Leffler's, you know, she's uh, she's pulling out a a a David Boys donation to try to tar Warnock as a fucking pay. It's uh, like as a, 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 a on light. It is yeah. despicable, despicable, despicable stuff. I think for Leffler, this is just cheaper than a Bloomberg terminal. So she can kind of trade stocks ahead of the curve. That seems to be the <laughs> primary motivation here. I will say too that like I think that Warnock has handled these attacks in a very smart way like instead of getting down in the mud and going back and forth on them with her she accused me of this i'm not this she's that blah 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 like he has you know it started with the puppies ad and then he's out there just talking about what he's for what he's going to do for georgians and that's what john ossoff has and their negative message about those two has been these are two corrupt fucking assholes who are emblematic of everything that's pissing you off about washington yeah and like that's the senate that you're going to get if you send them back like i I think it's good to say this now because who knows if they lose, they lose. But like, I think they have done almost as well as they can with on the message side in this race. I think that that, uh, Ossoff and Warnock have. And it's look, it's much this is very it's harder for Warnock, right? When you're running as a black candidate, you have to worry more about being called angry or divisive or all the bullshit that was lobbed at Barack Obama, who was out of the same side of the, you know, their mouth, they were calling him professorial and aloof and all this stuff. And I think he is right. running sort of an Obama-like strategy of trying to rise above a lot of these attacks. Now, obviously, they're punching back on the stocks, the insider trading, all that stuff. But I do think they are tying that to substance, like you said, when it comes to the stimulus. I also just really, I also just liked how they both call out the game, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. not, they're not just punching back. They're saying, you know, you know, Asif has a version of like they they want you to believe you can't do better than this. And you have Warnock saying like they're trying to make you afraid of me because they're afraid of you. And yep. they're both just sort of it's compelling and inspiring. And, you know, in the face of so much misinformation, I think they're doing the best that they can. And a lot of money. I, I think win or lose, there will be lessons 
from their campaigns in how to uh, attack Republicans and also run campaigns going forward. All right, let's turn to Operation uh, Definitely Less Than Warp Speed. Uh, the first first coronavirus vaccine was approved at the beginning of December, but out of the 40 million vaccines delivered last month, only 5 million have been administered. At this rate, experts say that it could take 10 years to vaccinate the entire country. The Trump administration had publicly set the ambitious goal of providing 20 million Americans with their first round of the vaccine by the end of December, end of the year. That obviously hasn't happened. Uh, love it. Why is this process taking so long? And whose fault is it? Uh <laughs> So basically anything that the Trump administration touches turns to shit. And so when, you know, obviously the response and there's a great, uh, very, very in-depth look at the response to the virus by uh, uh, Lawrence Wright in The New Yorker. I suggest everybody read it, set aside a few days for it. It's quite long. And what you and, and basically what you see here is once the development of the vaccine as quickly as it was developed is one of the greatest achievements in scientific history. It's an incredible achievement. But now it is not just about science. It is a practical logistical question. And what is clear is this administration is not capable of planning ahead and putting in place the process that will make it so when this thing got to the states, when it got to public health departments around the country, when it got to hospitals, when it got to doctors, that there would be uh, uh, clear guidelines, clear plan, clear funding in place to help them get it from <laughs> uh, deep freezers into people's arms. And so there is wherever you look, there is chaos, there is confusion, there is uh public health departments that are completely strapped. There are hospitals that are completely strapped. These people are exhausted. They are exhausted and they have been going hard for months and months trying to deal with this pandemic without enough resources, without the PPE. And then all of a sudden the vaccine is here. There is no procedure. There is no plan. There are 50 different sets of rules, 50 different ideas of how to distribute it. And all of this, look, there was always going to be challenges. There are always going to be problems. This is a a once in a century event. It is difficult. It is complicated. It takes incredible Uh, 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 ingenuity and resources, not just to develop the vaccine, but to get it uh, to people. But all of this, I think, would have been so much different under an administration where the president could focus on something other than voter fraud for more than an hour. Tommy, what do you think? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I'm trying to keep from losing my mind by, you know, allowing for the fact (laughs) that there are some mundane and understandable reasons, right? Like if you got your batch of vaccines right before the holiday, you then went away for a couple of days from Christmas and that could have slowed it down. They're all trying to figure out how to work with vaccines that are stored, stored at these ultra low temperatures, right? So I'm sure that's all challenging. But there is a part of this that I just think is a deliberate choice that is directly attributable to Trump. They haven't given states clear guidelines for how best to distribute doses, right? Congress has not given them enough money to pay for that infrastructure. And so you also have this, you know, hesitancy uh, that is uh, among some parts of the population to take the vaccine. It's very worrisome how many healthcare workers are rejecting uh, early access to the vaccine. In California, where we are, uh, you know, the vaccination process is colliding with a massive really dangerous outbreak. But I do think, you know, this is part of the strategy that we've heard about forever, which is Trump basically wants to say, I get credit for the vaccine production, but the rest of it is on the states. They didn't want to own testing. They didn't want to own, you know, sufficient use of the DPA to ensure there's enough PPE uh, and other, you know, vital materials for healthcare workers. So they just push it all to the states without giving them any of the funding they need. And it's, you know, it's not going well. I think we can catch up. I think that's the key. Like, I think they can catch up to this. All these stats about, oh, at this rate, it'll take 10 years to vaccinate the whole country. I think that's a little bit clickbaity alarmist. We can catch up. Fauci talked about this yeah, over the weekend. but Well, 
that's that's based on like if everything is going exactly as it is now right and like the idea is we speed it up and then suddenly those timelines change dramatically you know one big issue is that different states have prioritized different groups of people because yeah. again it's not a centralized approach after healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities some states have decided to prioritize frontline workers and people 75 or older others have decided to prioritize elderly people over frontline workers and a sort of a broader swath of, of elderly people like 65 and older um members of congress had early access now apparently two staffers from each congressional office can get it too outrageous uh, meanwhile Governor Cuomo said that outrageous. Governor Cuomo said that New York would institute a one million dollar fine if anyone gives the vaccine to someone out of order. Also which stupid. I, I also think is also stupid. What are you there, doing? Was a, there was a story that was floating around today in Washington uh, about Washington in Washington D.C. where there was a pharmacist who told two people, "Hey, I got to throw this vaccine away. Do you guys, do you two people who are just standing here, want some vaccine? Because otherwise, I'm going to throw it away." Like, how are we in a position where we're throwing fucking vaccines away in the middle of a fucking pandemic when everyone's home and millions of people are sick and dying? And we're gonna, like, Florida, this is inexcusable. Florida was doing first come, first serve, and you had like senior citizens camping out on on the sidewalk together in crowds. And so, and so, like all of this, right? Like, there was always going to be. I mean, that we we won't we don't need to talk about, but that person who's just like, I'm going to throw some vaccine away because I suck. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> but, right. but but like there was always going to be this is a, a fast paced, difficult thing. There's going to be lost vaccines. There's going to be vials that hit the ground. There's going to be things that go bad. There's going to be grabbing a pizza guy off the street and giving him the vaccine. That's great. Like that's that's life. Like that should be happening. But if it was in the context of a clear forget, even you can let the states do it the way they think is best, but a clear uh, um, uh, a calm, consistent message from the top that said, everyone will get a vaccine. It will take about this length of time. You can trust what we are going to say. There's no need, no need to race out. We're going to make sure everybody has it. We're going to do it fairly. We're going to do it faithfully. You wouldn't have all of this uncertainty and panic and people racing to get in line if people just had a sense of where they were in the line, when they were going to get it. There's so much stuff communication that would have happened if you had an actual presidency and an actual group of people committed to informing the the public about what was going to happen and the steps to get it done. And a president who hasn't taken it, by the way. But like, yeah, give them military infrastructure. They don't have to be uniform. It doesn't have to look scary. I'm not saying like inject it from the top of a tank, but like give them all the infrastructure they need to get this thing out there. And out, like it, it's, it's maddening to hear stories that, you know, some of these doses might be wasted. It, it makes no sense. Emily made the point. She's like, the National Guard was out here on uh, on Larchmont uh, in L.A. during the uh, the Floyd protests. Right. Right. For like no good reason. And yet, like now there's like a mass vaccination program that we're trying to get underway. Like, where are they now? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't every resource of the federal government being deployed to vaccinate people as soon as humanly fucking possible? Now, we're talking about the Trump administration, which plenty to criticize, as we've done. Um, Joe Biden's going to take office soon. He has pledged to ensure 100 million vaccines are administered in his first 100 days in office. We are nowhere near hitting the million vaccinations a day on average needed to achieve that goal. Like, what can Biden do to speed things up? Because, you know, I'm torn here. Like, we've all been in government, right? Like, we've seen, you know, promises of speed and efficiency, you know, fall to bureaucracy and lawyers telling you no and people in the bureaucracy telling you no. Like, it is hard to push even with the best intentions, the machinery of the federal government and the bureaucracy to act and act quickly during an emergency. It just is. We've all seen it happen, right? Like we didn't want fucking healthcare.gov to fuck up, but it did, even with the best intentions. And I do think that like, this is a moment for the Biden administration. This is going to be maybe the most important thing they do. 
uh, in the first 100 days or the first year or maybe the presidency, right, is, is to get this done. And he has to act quickly and break all the China he needs to break in the federal government to get this done. I thought Mitt Romney had some good ideas in the statement he released criticizing the vaccine rollout, which was, you know, lead some major effort to get retired doctors, retired nurses, veterinarians, like military medics, people who are no longer in the healthcare field, get pull them in, pay them, have them be a part of this process, right? So that's something he, that, that Biden could do if he wants a bipartisan idea. He's also said that he's going to uh, use the uh, the DPA, the Defense Production Act, more often to give private industry more production of materials needed for vaccines, as well as more PPE. I read that Operation Warp Speed has used the DPA 18 times, including to make glass vials and syringes. Uh, so I'm not sure what else yeah. specifically they need. I mean, the, the other good news for Biden is that in late January, Johnson & Johnson is going to release clinical trial results for a single-shot vaccine. So that will help AstraZeneca's results uh, will come in February. So hopefully there will just be more supply. And then maybe, you know, maybe you're just getting to a point where you're just sending big shipments to CVS and people like us who are not in any of these at-risk profiles are just getting in line and just getting the thing. But yeah, th this is, you know, competence will go a long way, I think. Competence will go a long way, but I think it, the creativity point is it matters a lot too because competence will take you so far. But I think the federal government's gonna have to get really creative in even the things you were saying, Tommy. But like the holidays, right? right. Like there, there should be twenty four hour vaccination yeah. centers, right? Like if there's a two thirty a.m. shift for a vaccine, who, I, I would stand in line at two thirty in the morning to get the fucking vaccine. A lot of people would, right? Like, and, and if we have to pay people to work those shifts around the clock, let's do it. We, the money should not be an object here. Like it should be like. Very ambitious, like sky's the limit on what we think about here to get you know, this done. There was a there was a brief flickering moment where Trump was like, this is a war and I'm a wartime president. And then it went away. It never happened. Right. And there are so many aspects of it. Yeah, it's it's resources. Uh, it's also something that I think a competent administration would have done, which is just best practices. Hey, what states are doing it well? Let's get that information. Yeah. Let's get that information to other states, right? That's something that the federal, yeah, the convening, the power to convene, get people together, talking about the best, best thing to do to get this into people's arms as quickly as possible. And the other thing that has just been completely absent is patriotism. You know, when another, I've just, I've been uh, thinking about this, this piece by, but this right piece, which, and it talks about how one thing that, that, that helped New York so much in the early days of the pandemic was that people really responded from across the country. They came to help that they, they came to help and people are willing to help, but there's no, there's no message like that. There's no leadership. There's no, there's no PPE being sent to everybody's homes built, you know, as part of a patriotic kit to every, have everybody wear a mask, like all of that, the kind of the, the the soft power of the presidency has just never been employed by these people. And, and, and that's part of why we're paying this price, too. The good news is that Biden's incoming chief of staff is Ron Klain. Ron Klain was the coordinator for the Ebola this. response, right? So he knows how they deployed the U.S. military to set up basically hospital infrastructure in Africa so that like workers were safe. Like there's lots of creative ideas that I think were probably bandied about during H1N1, during Ebola that Ron can can bring to bear. And in, in a lot of ways, it's probably already road tested. I was just say the, the, the team really heartens me that, that that Biden has selected the COVID team. And in addition to Ron, Jeff Zients, who's going to be the, the COVID czar, right? Like Jeff came into the Obama administration to fix healthcare.gov when it was broken, did that, and then had a lot of jobs in the White House that was like involved managerial experience and expertise and logistics, right? So like he's good at that, the, the new Surgeon General, like the, there's just a really good team coming in that is both competent and creative that I feel confidence in. Um, I just hope that they are, you know, they're willing to yeah. move fast and, and break some China. No more cushions. Overcome the fact that the most important work that could have been done 
should have been done three, four, five months ago. Yeah. Right. So. Okay. Uh, when we come back, you will hear uh, an excerpt. Oh, sorry. When we come back, you will hear uh, Alyssa Mastromonaco in her YouTube series, Let's Break It Down, talk about presidential transitions. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. We came down what we thought would be the three most likely scenarios that they would face. We flagged a hurricane, we flagged the cyber attack, and we flagged the pandemic. Welcome to our third episode of Let's Break It Down, where we go behind the scenes at the White House to reveal how campaign events are planned, choreographed, and executed to prevent things from going terribly wrong. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Barack Obama. Joining me today is Chris Liu former White House Cabinet Secretary, Deputy Secretary of Labor, and Director of Transition after the 2008 election. I've known Chris since he was the Legislative Director for then-Senator Barack Obama. Chris Liu, welcome to Let's Break It Down. Thank you for being here today. It is so good to see you. Uh, Listen, we've been in uh, the trenches uh, for a long time together, so it's great uh, to be on here with you. I mean, for like 15 years at this point. It feels point. like 15 years. We're, I know. We were much younger back in the day. <laughs> okay, so Chris, knowing what you know, being an expert, if you will, um, looking at the transition thus far, what major actions are delayed or have been delayed because of the Trump administration's denial of the election outcome? Let's just do a little bit of concept. Back in 2008, there were 77 days between election day and inauguration day. This year, there are 78. And mind you, you work backwards. At noon on January 20th, uh, 4,000 political appointees leave. Basically, the entire senior leadership of the U.S. government leaves, the most powerful, largest organization in the world. You would not do this in any private sector company uh, or university, whatever. Um, But we do it. But you also have to understand in 77 days to prepare to take over the U.S. government is no easy task. It's one of the reasons you start early, but it's also the reason why every single day matters. So if you lose days, those are days when you're not interviewing and vetting potential nominees. Those are days when you're not inside the federal agencies trying to understand the policies and the budgets. Uh, It's days when, most importantly, security clearances aren't happening, which means you can't put people into the national security agencies. Those are days when you're not having, you know, communications with the outgoing administration about whatever, you know, homeland security risk or national security risk you're trying to cover. Um, And again, it's hard to quantify what that means, except to say that 11 weeks isn't enough time. And if you cut that down by three weeks, which is what happened here, um, that's going to have an impact. Hard to say what that impact is, But I think given the challenges that the country faces right now around the pandemic, around the economic recession, uh, you would want as much time as possible. I remember very clearly 
in my office, the small office, not the bigger office. When uh, you came to see me, I think it was like July of 2012. And you and I started, might have been June, and you and I started talking about preparing the Romney transition. Now, people don't really talk about this. Yes, we were the sitting president and Barack Obama, I'm sure you had this conversation with him as many times as I did. He said, we will never do any less than the Bush team did for us, we will do more. We will try to do even more than they did because the transition of power is so important. And so you and I started talking about making sure all the binders, when you transition, most departments pass binders on to their uh, to the incoming uh, administration so they understand what certain templates, what documents, what decision memos look like, what what different kinds of like... I mean, I didn't know how you order a military aircraft. I found out in my transition binder. And so you and I made sure that across the campus, everyone had their binders updated. And we worked with the Romney folks to get ready, working with some of them on their clearances, because as a reminder to everyone, Benghazi happened in September of 2012. And so our national security team wanted to make sure that the Romney folks had clearance to be able to get updates, much like President Bush made sure that both us and John McCain were able to get the briefings on the financial crisis um, at the same time. So knowing all that, I left onto much greener pastures in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and you ran the transition for Trump, our, the Obama administration lead for the uh, transition for 2016, which ultimately ended up being Trump. Can you give folks all the color, all, how did you prepare? What did you hand over to them? How did they like respond? Tell us all. So let's start in 2012. I mean, first of all, this is one of the more uncomfortable projects you will ever take on because, you know, notwithstanding, you know, our boss had made this commitment that he was going to be as cooperative with his successor, whether that was after four years or as eight years as his predecessor was to him. So he had made that commitment. He believed in it. He tasked us with that. But again, it's this horribly uncomfortable thing because, you know, we're trying to win an election at this time. And yet we also understand that you have to put that partisanship aside and focus on continuity of operations and what's good for the country. So you're right. We sat down with all of the federal agencies or the major ones. I remember we brought them into one of the big rooms in in, um, EEOB and had this conversation, made sure they had their binders together. uh, And we were ready. And obviously, we didn't want to have to have a transition, but we were ready in case we did. Fast forward to 2016. I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor. And so I was managing our transition on the way out. This time you knew you were going to leave, but you were hoping you were going to hand uh, the reins to somebody uh, who was from your own party. But obviously that didn't work out. But we had all the binders ready. We had, you know, the the room that they could work in. We had computers. We had um, a whole set of briefings uh, that we were going to suggest that they do. And election day happens. Obviously the result is not what we wanted. Um, There's a lot of, you know, understandable grief among the political appointees, Uh, but we're ready to do the handoff. And we wait and we wait and we wait and nothing happens. And it's funny because when we ran the transition in 08, I made sure, election day is a Tuesday, I made sure that we had people in the federal agencies, certainly by the following Monday, six days later, but in many cases by that Friday. So three days later, we had people in. 
I don't remember when the Trump people actually showed up at the Department of Labor. I think it was like the Friday or Monday. It was probably like the Monday of Thanksgiving week. And one person showed up. It wasn't 10 people. It wasn't 20 people. It was one person. Very nice person. We had a nice conversation. I gave him a bunch of binders. I suggested he do these briefings. Uh, He said, sure. And then uh, he did some of them. He brought a couple more people in. They did some more. But it wasn't kind of the organized thing that you would hope would happen when you're taking over a, a federal agency. And when you look across the, the whole government, this was happening across the place and it's subsequently been written about, but obviously they had Chris Christie planning their transition uh, before election day. The day after election day, he, Chris Christie was fired. All of the materials that he and his team had put together were thrown away and they started all over again. Now, we started this by saying, even in an optimal world, 77 days isn't enough to plan a transition. And it's certainly not enough when you start the day after election day. And I think in many ways, the chaos, the dysfunction of the Trump administration, certainly over the first year, can be traced back to the fact that they just both didn't expect to win. And once they won, didn't think through clearly how to do this handover, uh, this takeover. Because it goes to show that like, Governing is actually really hard and really important. And it's almost like when they had Chris Christie run transition, it was like, let's give Chris Christie something to do. (laughs) Like they didn't totally understand that he probably was in their orbit one of the best people uh, to have been running the transition for them. Another, just to your story, we talked about this a little bit before, but one of my favorite Trump transition stories can be found in Susan Rice's book, where she talks about meeting with the national security staff incoming Michael Flynn and and his deputies. And of all the questions, Chris, that I know I brought to my transition meetings, they asked her if she had ever considered working in shifts with her staff, because this whole idea of being on 24-7 seemed unnecessary to them. They're like, there must be a better way. And she was like, oh, my God. And then Michael Flynn tried to hug her. Just imagine that whole thing in your head. Can I I tell you, though, I mean, again, this is why these things matter. in January of 09, we did a tabletop exercise with the outgoing Bush administration to walk through potential things that would come up. In 2017, and again, now this has been written about, we did a tabletop exercise with the Trump people the one week before Inauguration Day, where we gamed out what we thought would be the three most likely scenarios that they would face in terms of a, na- a Homeland Security thing. We flagged a hurricane, we flagged a cyber attack, and we flagged a pandemic. And I remember sitting there in one of those big rooms in EEOB when we used to, where we used to do these tabletops, and one of the most awkward meetings I've ever been in, where they had the outgoing cabinet person sitting next to the incoming cabinet person around the r- table. So I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez was tied up, so I'm sitting with Mnuchin on one side of me um, and uh, the person they originally nominated for labor, Andy Puzder, and you're looking around the room and it literally is, you know, it's Scott Pruitt, it's Wilbur Ross, it's, it's Elaine Chow. And there sitting there is Susan Rice next to Mike Flynn. Uh, one of my, uh, the, the most searing visuals was uh, over in the Justice Department corner, it was, Jeff Sessions, Sally Yates, and Jim Comey sitting right next to each other. And you're like, boy, uh, that's, it's quite a thing to see 
you know, I don't know if it was uh, Josh Ernest sitting next to Sean Spicer. It was like every, it was one of the most uncomfortable meetings I've ever been in. Oh my God. That's, I mean, and the thing is we had such uh, rules mostly because you and I were assholes, but it's like, I wish that we had had the, that we were, we had okayed more photo taking in the West Wing. We did not allow like personal no, I know. picture taking. We were like, no, but you hear some of this stuff and I'm like, fuck, I wish I had a picture. Pete Sousa can't be everywhere. Okay, so here is something that I know people know very little about, and Trump has really sort of butchered uh, people's understanding of this specific group of people. Career employees. Yeah. Career employees are who Donald Trump has vilified as the deep state, in quotes, deep state, meaning that in some way, shape or form, he was trying to tell America or at least his supporters that career employees were trying to have like a coup d'etat. Can you explain who career folks are and why they matter to the peaceful transition of government? I mean, this offends me too. My core. My father was a career federal employee at the Defense Department. I have three aunts and uncles who worked uh, at the federal government. What what Donald Trump calls the deep state are two million career civil servants who ensure that you get your Social Security check, you get your veterans benefits, that the air that you breathe is clean, that the food you eat is inspected, that we're not attacked by people overseas. Uh, It is the people that enforce our laws. I mean, I tell people you literally cannot walk from your house to your curb. uh, And I can tell you 10 different ways that the federal government affects your life. Again, we can stipulate whether government's too big, too small. We can have that argument. But these are people who uh, are underappreciated, who are not well paid by and large. I mean, they have a lot of other benefits, uh, generally not well paid. And, and labor under you know, challenging work conditions uh, to provide service to the American people. Now, of course, we want it to be better. And we, you know, uh, that's something we should strive for. But these are not the enemy. And w- when they're standing up to Donald Trump, often at considerable personal cost to themselves. Uh, They're doing it because, like all of us, they swear an oath to the Constitution. The oath is not to the President of the United States. It's not to a political party. It is the Constitution. And they're standing up to protect the laws of our country. And in many ways, I think the lesson we've learned from the last four years is that a lot of the guardrails of democracy haven't held up particularly well. Certainly, you know, the Republicans in the Congress have not uh, been a check on this president. The press has done its job, but as importantly, it's federal civil servants. And I think about all of the people that came forward during impeachment who were then subsequently fired or demoted or moved to other jobs. Those are all federal employees who saw something that bothered them to the core and risked their jobs uh, in order to protect the laws of our country. And not just their jobs, in so many cases, their pensions, you know, their retirement. And also, these are people who, you know, when we were in office, our career employees, our career public servants had served both Bushes, the Clintons. Sometimes they had been around as long as Carter or Reagan. I mean, these are people who truly put like country over party in every single way. And so hopefully not too many of them have fled and the Biden folks can restore those seats of people who might have left. But the problem, though, is that a lot of them have left. I mean, you know, we know that in the 
Foreign Service because it is so difficult trying to defend this uh, president's uh, foreign policy aims. A lot of the senior diplomats have left. We know that there's been this big exodus of climate scientists from EPA and interior and agriculture. And, you know, that kind of expertise is not easy to replace. And so it's, yeah, you're right. It's going to be important for the Biden people to figure out how can we replenish the federal service quickly. Chris Liu, thank you for joining me on Let's Break It Down. This was so much fun. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. I mean, it's it's like, you know, it's, it's and to think that was, my God, that was 12 years ago. That has gone ago. by fast. Thanks to Alyssa uh, for filling us in today. And... Good to be back, guys. I feel refreshed. I do. It was nice. That was a solid two weeks off. I, I, I'm taking uh, two weeks off in. I'm gonna. I'm gonna day. say no refreshing for me. Oh, yeah, John. I feel John so. Broke John, I was, I was. I was. I just was. I thinking, broke like, my shoulder for I all of you just, who haven't. <laughs> thinking about you, just like the elections behind us. We worked so hard. You know, like we we did all these podcasts. Like we we like we we were ready for this big important break. You're like ah vacation time to take a nice little jog. Boom, hit the ground just like instantly. And, and, and like instantly. at the beginning, at the beginning of the vacation, it was December 20th that I did this. And so I have been <laughs> December 20th, I broke I, I fell and broke my shoulder. I had surgery a week later on the 28th. So now <laughs> so I have not slept, uh, have not caught up on anything, have not helped Emily with our child, which I had been neglectful about during the election. So uh things are going great here. But you know, whatever. It's uh here we are, we're back. I'm on the mend and it's going to be a pretty chill week in news. Yeah, nice and quiet. Everyone everyone in D.C., just, you know, stay away from downtown on Wednesday. By the way, there's going to be a lot of Trump rallies and all kinds of proud boys and troublemakers. Just sort of stay clear. Stay clear. Of that. The world's worst people are descending on your city, so that's not good. But not great. All right. Uh, we will uh, talk to you guys on Thursday. Take care, everyone. Bye. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Quinn Lewis, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.